The new series is called I Believe, Formed by God's Story. I Believe, Formed by God's Story. We're going through the Apostles' Creed like chapters, chapter by chapter. We're looking at creation, fall, redemption, and consummation because the story at the center of your life forms the circumference of your life. Everyone loves a good story. You think about the last time you were at a restaurant and what did you hear around you? People are telling stories. It's the way that they make sense of the parts of their lives. It organizes the parts of life into a meaningful whole. Our kids loved story time when we were young. And when they were very young, I used to read them stories every night. And sometimes it was late and I was tired and I'd try to skip something. And I was amazed at how much, you know, how, how many stories we told, no matter how many. They knew the storyline. Stories get into us. They knew every place that Sam I Am offered to serve green eggs and ham. So if I tried to skip a couple of pages, they'd say, ah, you skipped, skipped something. Go back. Stories get into us. They get into us and they shape us because what's at the center, what story we're telling ourselves at the center shapes our circumference. Maybe, maybe you had a bad childhood. What story are you telling yourself about it? You fell down and scraped your knee, but you were brave and you became stronger. Uh, maybe you went through a season of bullying. What story are you telling yourself about it? What is the story at the center of your life, even after that difficult season? Are you going to live the rest of your life as a victim or are you a survivor? You see, we're formed around God's story. How do these stories get into us? How does the right story get into us? Well, the answer is by faith. And so we are formed by faith around the story that God is telling. From the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, 6 through 8, and 13. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who continue to seek him. So by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that had foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham, like a lot of others that are mentioned in this chapter, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. This is God's word. Let us pray. 
God, bless us now through your word, not only to our minds to understand it, but to our hearts to receive it, that through our lives we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. What is forming you? What's forming you? You can be sure of this. Something is forming you. Something, something at the center that you believe. Some story at the center. The story you're telling yourself about life. Something is forming you. Everyone believes something. I'm going to read to you a quotation by David Foster Wallace, who was not a believer. In fact, he was very infamously not a believer. Uh, he gave the commencement address to Kenyon College some years ago before, before he died. He died young. He wrestled with faith. He wrestled with God. He wrestled with himself. He wrestled with the meaning of life. And so I think knowing that gives this quotation a lot more punch. Here, here's what David Foster Wallace says. Here's something else that is weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason maybe for choosing some sort of God or spirit type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty, and you always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables. It's the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping truth up front in daily consciousness. You see what he's saying? He's saying what's at the center forms your circumference. See, how do stories get into us? What do we really believe? Everybody believes something. What gets to the center gets there by belief. So this morning, let's take a look at belief. What it is, how it shapes us, and why it matters. First of all, what is belief? Belief is simply this. It's a commitment of head, heart, and hands. It's a commitment of head, heart, and hands in a kind of combustion cycle. It's, got, it, it's all three of those. That's how Scripture describes it. That's how this Scripture describes it. In verses 6 through 8, you see that Abraham believes God. In Romans chapter 4, it, it talks about Abraham believing God and it being transferred to him as righteousness or credited to him as righteousness. Here it says, Without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe. Okay, that's pistos. Pistos means to, to trust. It's to put your full weight on something. It's to transfer yourself onto something and, and fully trust it. And then it says that believe that he exists and then that he rewards those who seek him. And that, that's a word that, that, that uh, is like examine, all right? So we continue to think and, and explore and seek. It's faith seeking understanding, greater understanding. You see heart and, hand, and, and head there. And then finally it says in verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham believed when he was called to go out to the place that he was to receive 
as an inheritance. And he went out. See the head and the heart and the hands. It's a little like getting onto an airplane. You may not know how an airplane works. You know, the thrust, you know, understand there's a certain thing about thrust and speed and upward force, the wings and the pressure. You may not know much about it. So you have to, at a certain measure, trust something. Everybody believes something. Everybody can, everybody has to have a certain measure of faith just to get through the day, just to get on an airplane. Now, when you trust an airplane, you, you then, when you step onto it, you can see, you understand a certain uh, amount about it, but you also understand what happens as a result. You understand that it takes you places. And it builds your confidence, right? That experience builds your confidence. And so you come back and you have greater trust because you put your trust in it. So it's a kind of combustion cycle of head, heart, and hands. You see how that works? Some people would would pursue a head-only faith, and there's a problem with that. The problem with head-only faith is it, it could just be like planks in a political platform. And you can see, especially in the last few years, what that, that can look like. If, if you have head-only faith, if it's just uh, like unto uh, a political platform, if the, the chapters in the Apostles' Creed are just things that you believe in, they can become weaponized. Even the very gifts and beautiful story of God can be used to say, I'm right and you're wrong. Head-only faith can become weaponized faith. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you can have all knowledge, but if you have not love, you are nothing. So you need not just a head-only faith, you also need a heart faith, but heart-only faith is, can be very self-indulgent. It's like all about the experience, the mountaintop. I remember being in a, another church one time where I used to serve you know, 10, 15 years ago, and uh, people in that church had gone to uh, what's called Emmaus Walks or Trace Diaz. I love these and highly recommend these experiences, but, but this person asked me if I had ever been on one, and at that time I hadn't. And, um, and so I said, no, I had not been on one. And he said, oh, you haven't been on an Emmaus Walk? Oh. I said, well, <laughs> I mean, I hadn't been on a three-day retreat, but I, I did go to seminary for three years. Does that count for anything, you know? See, to him, it... This experience flipped his switch. It was a place where God became real to him. But, but his view of it, I'm not disqualifying his whole experience or anything, but, but his view of it was, unless you had that experience, then maybe, maybe, you might not be a Christian. You see, when we begin to, uh, to, to put so much into some kind of template, or everybody's experience has to be the same, or, uh, or a heart-only faith that, that goes from experience to experience, it can become very self-indulgent. Or a hands-only faith. A hands-only faith can really become an imbalanced if it's all about people, it's all about action, it's all about serving, it's all about justice. Hands-only faith actually can become an outlet for somebody's anger where you're using someone else's pain to kind of justify your own and legitimize your own existence. Now, maybe it's a good thing that you're doing, but the reason and the motivation and the formation around hands-only faith can become really angry. You see, it's a combustion cycle. It's getting onto that plane. It's seeing the plane. It's trusting the plane. 
It's stepping onto the plane. It's experiencing and coming back with a greater sense of assurance. You see, that's why it says in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's, that's what faith is. That's what belief is. Now, how does it form us? Well, it forms us from the inside out. In other words, what's at the center, as I said, what's at the center works its way out into the whole circumference of your life. Again, what story are you telling yourself? What story do you believe about that period of your life? It shapes you profoundly. It shapes your character. Your character shapes, is formed around what's at the center. Oscar Wilde discovered this too late in life. Oscar Wilde, the great Irish poet, author, (laughs) funny story, when he came through customs uh, to the United States, he was in customs, and the custom agent said to him, do you have anything to declare? And he famously said, only my genius, right? Oscar Wilde, admittedly, later on in life, was full of himself. What was at the center of his life? Himself. Later he wrote this. The gods had given me almost everything, but I let myself be lured in long spells of senseless and sensual ease. Tired of being on the heights, I deliberately went to the depths in search of new sensations. I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me, and I passed on. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber, right, the center, then what one has done in the secret chamber, one must one day cry aloud from the mountaintop. I ceased, as a result, I ceased to be lord over myself, no longer the captain of my soul. I allowed pleasure to dominate me. I ended in horrible disgrace. Oscar Wilde discovered that he was formed around a hollow center. So what story is at your center? What is forming you? You can be sure of this. Something is. And what is at the center? Your character, the circumference of life, is being formed around it. Henry Nouwen realized this as well. Henry Nouwen is really one of my heroes in the faith. I only know him through his writings, but I consider him a, a key mentor in my life. And at one point, Henry Nouwen was recognizing that that God's story wasn't really the confident center of his life. And he began to recognize and to lament that fact. And he took kind of a pilgrimage to go and and look at and, and sit at the original painting of Rembrandt, Rembrandt's The Return of the Prodigal Son. He spent several days there, and he wrote a book about it called The Return of the Prodigal Son. I want you to look at Rembrandt's painting, and I want you to see what's happening there. This is what, this is what Henry Nouwen spent so many days just meditating on, this image of, of a father welcoming home a son, the flap of the shoe, the long journey of the son, uh, the, the deplorable uh, condition 
of the sun. You can see over on the right-hand side, you can see the, this, this straight and very, um, very aloof figure, the older brother, just a step out of this personal exchange. The father is tilted the head, just looking down, not, not in self-pity for having, uh, having uh, just such longing to see his son return, but simply compassion, a, 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 a frame bent over, condescending, embracing the son. This story began to, to get into Henry Nouwen. And as he asked himself this question, he said, at issue is this, to whom do I belong? To God or to the world? Many of my daily preoccupations suggest that I belong more to the world than to God, Nowen says. He says this, a little criticism makes me angry. A little rejection makes me depressed. A little praise raises my spirits and a little success excites me. It takes very little to raise me up or to thrust me down. See, he was discovering that there was a, a story not worthy of the human spirit at the center of his heart, the center of his soul. He goes on, he says, looking again at Rembrandt's portrayal of the return of the younger son, I now see how much more is taking place than a mere compassionate gesture towards a wayward child. The great event I see is the end of the great rebellion. The rebellion of Adam and all his descendants is forgiven. And the original blessing by which Adam received everlasting life is restored. It seems to me now that these hands have always been stretched out. Hebrews 11 is the story of people trusting in those outstretched hands. It's a litany of heroes of the faith, men and women, who, it says, believed in those things. They had a conviction and assurance of things not seen. People who stepped out as a result, who were formed around God's story of creation, fall, redemption, and resolution. That great story formed them by faith. What about you? Let's consider that. Why don't you ask yourself that question? How formed in, around that story are you? What story are you telling about that difficult season of life, about the big questions of life, of where you've come from, why you're here and where you're going? Are you forming around God's story? So the final question is this. Why does it matter what story is at the center? And here's the reason. Because if you don't know what something is for, namely your life, if you don't know what something is for, then you don't know whether it's good. Unless you know the purpose of something, you don't know whether the way it's functioning is good. Alistair McIntyre, great theologian, great scholar, world-renowned, has a famous illustration about this idea of knowing what something is for and knowing whether it is good. He says, he takes his wristwatch and he says, is this a good wristwatch? Is it good? Well, it's not good for hammering in a nail, but when you know what it's for, that it's for telling time, if it's on time, it's a good one. You see, we have to know 
what we're for. And that's why having God's story at the center of your life is so crucial. To be formed around God's story is to be formed according to what you're made for, according to your, your very purpose. And in so forming around what you're for, God makes you a good one. Verses 1 through 3, it says this. Faith forms us for now and then. In other words, that if we're going to live a life that, that is purposeful, that in other words, God is saying this. You're made for God. That's what you're made for. Starting now. Now, why is this so important? Because there have really been really two major brands of philosophy, two major schools of thought that people have formed around. One is a now without a then, and the other is a then without a now. See, a lot of people think that all we have is now. Materialism, Epicureanism, they're, they're different schools of thought that really form around this one idea that that now is all we have that the present is all we have other people like the stoics or the gnostics they think then is all we have and that influences us as well you can see today how people are formed around the idea of a now without a then and other people are formed around a then without a now you know there's too much a sense of escapism of a then without a now and not enough attention on issues of justice. For other people, it's all about now, and there's not enough of a sense of God's sovereignty and purpose. But see, what the Scripture is saying here in Hebrews 11 is that we're made for a now with a then, right? It says it's the conviction, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, we understand that this present universe was made out of something that we cannot see. But we have a present assurance and conviction of a future hope. Tom Holland, amazing scholar and, and author and historian, he, uh, he became a Christian through looking at history and understanding that Christianity is the story that brings now and then together. And without that Union, without that, that kind of story that, that really brings God into the present. Humanity has been an ugly story of the strong eating the weak. You see, Tom Holland, he grew up loving dinosaurs. He tells all about how much he loved dinosaurs. And he, he spent the first part of his career studying them and writing about them. And they just animated his imagination. And then he began to study other figures, human figures, that are, that are really historic, lionized people, um, literally, like Leonidas, uh, the great Roman uh, conqueror. Uh, and he began to look at these figures, and he began to find himself uh, feeling um, very startled by what he saw. Here was a history that was shaped around the strong eating the weak. A history of, of even infanticide and just a, a, a blatant disregard for the dignity of human life. If somebody didn't want a child, they just left him. And that was normal. And he began to ask himself the question, when did that change? 
When did compassion and justice become our new normal? And he, he discovered that the hinge of history really was the cross. You see, he began to see that his story wasn't big enough, that his love of history didn't go deep enough, that his, his hope for the trajectory of history, the arc of history, didn't go far enough and began to embrace the story of creation and fall, redemption and resolution. The whole idea of justice and dignity now, the whole idea of hope, a future hope, where hope comes in and animates the now, where justice is not only about now, but, but a future resolution. Tom Holland began to see that he was a Christian, and he began to be formed around that story. Here's how Tolstoy put it. Tolstoy made this discovery too late in life. He was in his 50s. He, Tolstoy, great storyteller himself. Many of you probably uh, who, uh, who are older have been to college, maybe have been assigned war and peace uh, Tolstoy, you know, wrote that great tome, bigger than a phone book. Some of you don't know what a phone book is, but, you know, so Tolstoy wrote this incredible book and so famous, rich, had 14 children, so much accomplishment, and he felt empty. And he said this, if a man believes in something, if a man lives, then he believes something. If he lives, he believes something. If he did not believe that one must live for something, then he would not live. See, he was really wrestling with his life. He said, if he does not see and recognize the fleeting and illusory nature of the finite. In other words, what he's saying is, if you're invested only in now, and if you think, and, and, and you don't see that it's, that it's fleeting, that it's an illusion, if you see that now, if you, if you allow yourself to be deluded that now is enough for you, then maybe you'll live. But if you realize that now is passing away, you have to invest in the infinite. That's what he's saying. He must believe in the infinite. Without faith, he cannot live. That's Tolstoy. You see, over the next number of, of weeks... We're going to recognize that we have so much to live for, so much more to live for than maybe we're even embracing. How crucial it is to understand what faith is, what, what belief is, head, heart, and hand. To understand how it forms us from the center. Your character forms around what's central. What story are you telling yourself? And that story has to be big enough for the human spirit. That's why God's story matters. So over these next weeks... Let's take a look at how to trust it more, how to understand it more and seek it more, that the combustion cycle of faith would continue to transform us. Here's how Yaroslav Pelikan put it. He said, what you have received as an inheritance, you must possess again in order to make it your own. Let's pray together. Our God and Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the story you're telling. That there's a hero in it, our hero, the great hero, Jesus. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us more and more, making us character. Characters in that great story that you're telling now and then. In Jesus' name, amen.
Let's stand together for this last song as we confess to God what we believe. your faith, confessed your sins, and, and received Christ into your life to be renewed, then I'm just going to hang around today, and after uh, we, we greet each other, I'm going to just be in the room, kind of towards the front. If you want to pray, be glad to pray with you. If there's somebody else in the room you want to pray with, uh, go seek them out. But if you've 
if you've had that experience, if, if it's kind of come home to you, don't let the day end before you speak with somebody and pray with somebody. If you're watching online and you want to reach out to someone, feel free to reach out to any of us on staff. We'd be glad to respond to you there. Now, uh, would you bow your heads for this closing? Good word. May God go with you today. Behind you to encourage you. Beside you to befriend you. Within you to give you peace. And before you to show you the way. Now and forevermore. Amen.